Welcome to How to Win Friends and Influenza, a podcast all about different specialties in medicine. My name's Lily and I'm the host of this excellent show. This episode, we're kicking it off with a brief discussion about life. Now, life is characterized by progression through various stages. The caterpillar transforms into the butterfly, the bat turns into Batman, politicians turn into liars. Mm -hmm. Well, humans in general, we move through the stages of fetus, child, adolescent, adult, and then unfortunately corpse. Mm -hmm. Well, at least outwardly, some of us stay mentally in child mode forever. It's pretty amazing there, especially when you actually have the disposable income to afford your own Lego. But back to adolescents who range from pop stars making money like Justin Bieber to delinquents putting needles in their fruit as a prank. They form their own category of people. And so adolescent medicine is a growing subspecialty that we're going to talk about today with Dr. Lynette. Welcome on the show. Hi, nice to be here. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. I'm really excited to learn more about adolescent medicine from you. So let's start off with what adolescent medicine actually is. So uh, adolescent medicine uh, is basically a branch of medicine that concentrates on that age group between when puberty starts and young adulthood. It actually has become adolescent and young adult medicine now. So more and more centres are becoming AYAM, as, as our unit here recently has been. So uh, the, I work in an adult hospital, so our younger age group is 14 years and 9 months, though there are some hospitals such as Children's Hospital next door who actually start from, you know, earlier on from 11 and 12 when puberty starts really and we have been going till 18 or when the young person leaves school but we now have extended our age range to include young adults up to 24-25 and it's basically uh, medicine that concentrates on the the developing needs of the young child as the child transitions into an adult with a recognition that that is a very specific time of life with unique needs when the individual is challenging the authorities around them, parents, teachers, etc. When they have chronic health needs or or, uh, acute health needs on top of their uh, emerging bid for independence, it can make for a whole set of problems that actually needs a whole different uh, approach and, and, and a specialty in that area. Um, and so adolescent medicine is all about dealing with the health challenges of adolescents as they emerge from children, childhood to, to um, adulthood. Yeah, I have to say AYAM is a great acronym. It's the <laughs> name of a um, brand of noodles that I really like. But also the yes. specialty sounds really exciting because in some way it's quite broad. There's no yes. exact limit, for example, 10 to 20 or something like that. It kind yes. of varies on the person. And, and, and that's very much so because... Uh, the one thing is that I guess we the, the law says you become an adult at a chronological age of 18 and between 16 and 18 there's some grey area there where you know children young people can have their say but parents are still, still guardians and so on but we recognise when we're actually in uh, uh, paediatrics and adolescent medicine that there is no definite age when you suddenly become an adult it's not like the butterfly that was the chrysalis <laughs> but you don't suddenly become a butterfly overnight sometimes you know you can be 18 going on 12 yeah. sometimes you can be 25 going on 12 yeah. and sometimes there are some kids unfortunately that have had to grow up very fast so they're 14 going on 23 and they can be equally sad so having a broad range and having it fairly grey at the edges and having some flexibility means that we as paediatricians and adolescent physicians can actually concentrate on the developmental age of the individual rather than the chronological age so 
if we have an 18 year old that's been very cosseted and very um, nurtured and, 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 and has an a unfortunate health problem or a, an illness, um, they may sometimes regress and they might behave more like a 12 year old and then we might have a street kid that has been living on the streets and has had to mature very fast and that we have to deal in a totally different way. So that this gives us the flexibility to treat young people according to their developmental needs, not just their chronological age. Um, so that's why I think it's it's good not to have like 10 to 20 or something like that because, you know, it, having a, a more broad broad time means we have that flexibility. Yeah. yeah. And that sounds like better patient outcomes as well. Definitely, definitely because we, um, you know, we also are able to keep our patients on to till young adulthood, which is good because we can then transition them. So, for example... You know, one of the areas that I deal with a lot is attention deficit disorder with hyperactivity. When I first started dealing with this disorder, we were only allowed to treat and prescribe as paediatricians until the age of 18, and then we had to apply every year for authority to prescribe. Um, it then, and this has been a good 10, 15 years now, I think, we got permission to basically keep them on till 24 without having to, because there's been that, without having to, 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 um, apply for permission every year because there's been that recognition that the young people will still need to, to uh, you know, the ADD doesn't go away overnight. Um, they need maturity sometimes and even as an adult they may have ADD but they may learn to be able to deal with it. But this transitions them through tertiary education, tech, TAFE, university, whatever it is they're going to do and it gives us that little bit of flexibility. So when my patients start turning 21, 22, 23, I start thinking about what's going to happen, what's life going to look like when I can't look after them anymore and they start thinking about it too and then we start exploring, are you going to still need to see someone? Sometimes they reach a stage where they don't need a paediatrician, adolescent physician. Um, if they do, then it's usually a psychiatrist or, an, you know, or depending on what the the health disorder is, uh, you know, it could be a physician, um, but it gives us a chance to transition so they can go and see the adult person, they can come back to see me if they're not happy, they can go back to see another one, and we finally get the balance right where they're, they're, they're happy with whoever they've ended up with in adult life. Um, so I think that's, that, that little bit of flexibility is good and leads to better outcomes, you know, so, so yeah, they don't feel like they've been left stranded. Yeah, I think I see the light behind adolescent <laughs> medicine. Instead of having just pure children-based paediatrics and then going straight to um, adult medicine, there's that transition period which is facilitated for. So instead of being like in Harry Potter where they turn 11 and they suddenly have to get on this train <laughs> yes. to go halfway across the country, there's a bit more yeah. planning. Yeah, that's right. And and transition medicine is becoming an increasing, uh, increasing sort of increasingly important area. Situated where we are, Westmead Hospital, next door to Children's Hospital, um, is perfect solution for good transition. Uh, although you know, uh, Westmead is an area-specific hospital. Kids Hospital is is not serves a broader community, but nonetheless, there is a transition unit here that, that for example, transitions uh, children and, and young adolescents with chronic health needs to the adult world, and you know. In the paediatric world, for example, uh, it's much easier in a way. There's a general paediatrician generally that can do lots of things and subcontract out to, to subspecialties and so on. When they come into the adult world, there's generally only, in most cases, subspecialty physicians. And it's very difficult for these kids and their families to navigate um, the, the, the health world, the adult health world. So having a transition team that can look after their needs and help them to deal with all the problems find new physicians, um, plus deal with education and all the other things they've got to do as they go through puberty uh, is certainly very helpful. Okay. 
Now, you mentioned ADD as one of the conditions and that there are a number of chronic conditions. What are the most common presentations or issues that you would deal with in adolescent medicine? So in my particular area of work here at this hospital, we've got uh, one main area that we all do and then there's we've got our little areas of interest. So I'm a behavioural developmental paediatrician and adolescent physician. So um, in terms of ambulatory care, I deal with um, attention deficit disorder, ADD, um, and a lot of the other behaviour disorders that go with it or that are comorbid, such as oppositional defiance disorder, conduct disorder, um, and some anxiety and depression, though I'm not a psychiatrist, so when um, when it's a really severe form, they all need to be seeing psychiatrists, and we work uh, in the community on an outpatient basis with psychiatrists. Um, Things like uh, um, autism, autistic spectrum disorders, learning and language difficulties, they're all in the realm of behavioural and developmental paediatrics and adolescent medicine and, and you know helping children through schooling, through tertiary education um, to, to cope with their learning difficulties is, is one of the things we do. The other big area that we all do in this unit is eating disorders so, and we have quite a big inpatient component to that where we do refeeding um, when we get these individuals with uh, severe malnutrition they come in they get refed by means of both nasogastric uh, tube feeding and or supervised eating um, regain the weight then we discharge them to outpatient care with us as well as psychologists and outpatient therapy so they're the two big areas we see we have someone else in our department that does some transgender work which is becoming an increasing area Um, so and we also have the transition that I mentioned before, transition medicine. Um, com- there are uh, uh, adolescents that we get asked to see with chronic and complex healthcare needs, for example, cystic fibrosis, or sometimes the subspecialty teams deal with them very well and they don't need us, but there are many um, um, areas where there are chronic illnesses where they do need our help. So they don't need our help to actually manage, for example, in cystic fibrosis, there is a wonderful respiratory team here. There's a great respiratory team at Kids Hospital. They don't need us to actually manage the respiratory condition. What they need sometimes as to help with is how does the individual transition, how do they manage compliance issues, education, um, sexual health, um, managing relationships in the context of an illness that's potentially shortening their lifespan. Um, you know, the, the, there are other chronic, chronic fatigue syndrome, school refusal. We sometimes get some of those, and we've had some inpatient admissions with those as well, where we kind of try to transition them back into into school. Um, uh, they'd be the main main spectrum, I think, of of, uh, of disorders that we'd see. Um, we've had recently Tourette, tics, Tourette's. We've had a complex Tourette's that's been in that's needed uh, intensive care to stop him injuring himself. And yeah, so we do get some really fascinating rare, rarities, but um, uh, yeah, they're, 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 we, uh, we have that holistic approach to, to them. So we look at, so we have the HEADS approach. I don't know if you've heard of it. So hey, the, the acronym is H-E-A-D and there's about three S's. <laughs> <laughs> so we look at the home, the home environment, A is for education or employment, depending on whether they're at still school. Um, and then you've got uh, also eating disorders, eat for eating disorders and I <laughs> So lots of E's and lots of lots S's. Lots of E's. Um, a, more for activities. So you've got to think of peer group activities, drugs, uh, sexual activities, uh, illicit drug use, all, all those sorts of things that adolescents might get up to. Um, uh, 
depression. Um, there's lots of S's like sexuality, suicidality, safety issues. Um, I would add sleep and sleep hygiene. You know, we need to look at, at especially in this day and age with so much um, internet and online devices, sleep is becoming a bigger, bigger, a bigger issue. Um, and, and and stress basically, as opposed to anxiety. Did I mention anxiety? Uh, well, anxiety <laughs> would be A, but yeah, that's right. Yeah, so heads, that's right. So H E E E E A A. This is a lot. There's a lot of letters in there, but uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now it sounds like to be in this area of medicine, there needs to be a greater social awareness of what's going on with the patients. So for some people, that might suit them because they get this overview of the patient. They get to deal with other things but for some people it might not suit them because they might just want to be pure medicine I just want to fix your kidneys and correct yeah. your blood pressure yeah. so who is this area of medicine for and not for so adolescent is very much uh, for people that enjoy working with young people um, a lot of adolescent physicians come to this field from pediatrics in fact most of us are pediatricians have trained as pediatricians there's a uh, there is actually a way to get into it from adult medicine either way you do your fellowship so you you know you graduate you you, you become a doctor you do your internship and you do some initial years decide you want to do work with young people and the most common pathway would be to do a fellowship with the Royal Australasian College of Physicians which is actually the same college for both adult physicians and pediatricians but you do it different exam for you become a pediatrician and then as a pediatrician you might subspecialize in adolescent medicine now there's a few of the uh, there's a couple of old time uh, old times uh, pre previous uh, adolescent <laughs> physicians that have come into it from adult medicine and we're actually hoping now that we've gone into AYAM that there will be more people coming into it from uh, so they will do the fellowship exam with the same college but from an adult end and then instead of specialising in cardiology and renal medicine they will come come become a, a general physician for young adults and, and adolescents and work from the top end down um, and paediatricians working from the bottom end up. Um, you choose paediatrics and adolescents, I did anyway because I wanted to make it, I loved working with young people and, and babies and children and I guess, look, the adult physicians will disagree with me, but as a paediatrician, I would say that you save a young life and you're saving 70, 80 odd years of life. You're improving the quality of life for the next 70, 80 years, as opposed to working at the other end where, where you, you have, you know, less. That's not to say that anyone's life is not, everyone has an equal value of life. But as a paediatrician, that, that for me, that's kind of what justified in addition to the fact that I enjoyed working with children. And when I actually did paediatrics, I found that within paediatrics, I enjoyed, loved working with adolescents. I think adolescence is particularly challenging because um, it's a time when they're breaking away from their parents, teachers, etc. cetera. Um, they bid for independence. When they have health needs on top of that, sometimes you as a physician can make a big difference when, and we can see that in eating disorders and parents look to us uh, very often to, to, to guide them and their kid through through the illness with the kids acting out and there's poor compliance issues and things like that challenges which you don't see so much in pediatrics as such because the children are very much more in their parents care and as adults when they've matured and they've taken on the illness for themselves they can deal with it but in this particularly challenging fa phase uh, you're dealing with often very reluctant patients and that's that's a that that is one of the big challenges so it is for people who enjoy working with young people enjoy um, having a little bit of flexibility you're not going to be as rigid and watertight as being a renal physician there's not that many rules black and white rules it is more, much more of a gray area and you must enjoy adolescence and, and and working with you know all that it brings acting out poor compliance <laughs> reluctance there's also a lot of joy in it because underneath it all there are young people there that are 
you know, hoping that you will give them a lifeline mm. somewhere along the line, you know. Yeah, I suppose yeah. philosophically, you know, yeah. without adversity there is no joy. You exactly. have to work hard for what you want. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Now, we also mentioned chronic diseases. So is it correct to say that if a child or adolescent presents acutely, they would go to a general paediatrics emergency department or yeah. a subspecialty team? Yeah, so, so depending on what the illness is uh, and how acute it is, initially your GP and then to the emergency room or to directly to the emergency room, they get treated based on its merits. Some illnesses are acute and self-limiting. Some become more chronic and, you know, you get diagnosed with, uh, with an ongoing illness. And then that adolescent and young person needs help to be able to uh, accept it. So there are all the stages of, you know, denial, anger, acceptance, uh, and, and, and eventually, hopefully, um, you know, they will accept their therapy and accept whatever, whatever they have. Different illnesses have different prognosis. So eating disorders, for example, there is heavy denial and there's, it's often a chronic and um, complex illness in the sense that, uh, that you know, they, they will even deny that they, there is anything wrong with them. Or you might medically rehabilitate them and, and uh, you know, restore their weight, put them back in the community onto, into um, psychological management. But then, um, you know, it, it, it's months, sometimes years and years of battling with that uh, mental illness. Um, others are quicker, you know, and, and sometimes even with eating disorders we have uh, a quick success rate. It's just, a, you know, something that went a little bit wrong, someone that took being healthy a little bit too far, lost too much weight, we restored their weight, a little bit of therapy in their back. So you have all those extremes. When they get sick, they need to present for the first time and then hopefully if it's a chronic illness we will build a team around them. Um, that often includes GP, it includes the specialist and it includes psychologists. Um, uh, you know, depending on the dietitians, social workers, and so on. So in the eating disorders team, we have social workers, psychologists, dietitians, um, as well as doctors, um, uh, pediatricians, and so on to, to to work with the with the people with the young people. Okay. So would it be generally fair to say then the kind of person who might be attracted to adolescent medicine is happy to work with patients long term, work with a very multidisciplinary team, yes. all different kinds of um, yes. areas of medicine and health, and happy to work with them on these chronic illnesses. Whereas if someone's into more acute, just straight textbook type medicine, or maybe something very procedural yes. or very operation based, then perhaps they should look elsewhere. Is elsewhere, that that's right. So, you know, yeah. you decide very early on, I think, in your medical career, whether you're more surgically inclined or, or, or a physician, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that was one of the easiest decisions for me, <laughs> not to be a surgeon. <laughs> and I very quickly did my mandatory training as an intern in my two terms of surgery and then never did surgery again. <laughs> Though I did do a diploma in obstetrics where I had to do a little, I had to do a few cesarean sections. But, um, very, you know, it was very early. That decision was the easiest one for me. <laughs> Um, then deciding what I actually wanted to that that can you can sometimes there are some people that know from uh, the day they graduate that they want to be a renal physician and great you know that's fantastic uh, when I did medicine I you have to have to remind you by my age I did it in the time when it was all undergraduate so I was very young and I was very young as a doctor so I needed a good few years two three four years as a resident re senior resident registrar to really decide and I knew that in my undergraduate at time I had enjoyed paediatrics and psychiatry um, for a little while in my internship and junior resident years I tried my hand at physician, adult physician and I realised that I always kept coming back to paediatrics, I loved it. Um, so then I decided, went in for my training and um, 
it took me a good three to four years to actually realise that I did actually want to spend my life doing this. I did take a gap year late. I don't, you know, nowadays a fashion is to take it between school and, and university. But for me, the right time was after actually doing my undergraduate degree, after doing a few years of training, took a gap year. It's great taking a gap year when you can actually earn more money, <laughs> you know, doing doing locums and things like that. And, and then I really knew that I wanted to be a paediatrician. Um, when you finally decide you want to do it, um, it's you you need to take a running leap. It's one of the hardest exams I've ever done, and you'll ever have to do a fellowship exam. Um, it, it's you know when you do your undergraduate degree or your your MBBS, it's it's postgraduate now. You've basically passed. Generally, you've passed before you enter the door, and you have to prove to your examiners why they should fail you. With a fellowship, it's the opposite way. Mm. You've failed before you enter the door, and you need to prove <laughs> right. to the examiners why they should admit you to their ranks as a fellow. So it's slightly different mindset, and yeah. you kind of and and you need to be able to take failure well too. You can't be you just cannot be someone who can't afford to fail. You need to take it as part of your learning curve, and, and accept a few rejections and a few knockbacks. When you get through, you really makes you it much, makes you much much better physician. And then what you then want to do, whether you want to subspecialize, you will when you're doing that kind of extensive training, you'll know. I enjoyed renal medicine. I love that kind of. It's very cut and dry. They look at weights. They look at fluid. They look at electrolytes very much. And that's what I enjoy doing. And I thrive on that. I want to get into research, etc. Or I, I enjoy talking to people. And you know, if you enjoy the more the more. Um, social aspects and behavioural aspects and mental health aspects, then paediatrics is certainly, you know, as medical as you want it to be because you can do renal um, paediatrics, you can do paediatric cardiology, you can do a whole uh, range of things in there. Um, But if you like behavioural, developmental and mental health, then things like psychiatry, adolescent medicine, behavioural paediatrics, other things to look at. And very much work in a team. It's very hard to work in isolation. So teamwork is very much um, on the cards. And and, and it's also very enjoyable too, because you get to feed off each other, you learn from your colleagues, and you learn from the different subspecialties as well. So it's actually really good. I mean, I love what I do because I get to work with such skilled people as well. We learn off each other, so... And that's an excellent overview of, a very real overview of what the training can be like. But I guess all of life is about, you know, taking rejection well and and powering through no matter what. You know, medical students aren't used to it because they've probably excelled all their lives. And the first time you'll start to, uh, you know, as a a resident, junior resident, you will start to get some knockbacks. But remember, you're in the company of other very people who have also never been, never (laughs) never Mm -hmm. failed or anything like that. And I think learning how to pick yourself up is one of the one of the best things you can do as, as an intern and, and, and junior resident because life is hard as a doctor but it's also very enjoyable. You just need to be able to take them both. Yeah, I think <laughs> and because, enjoy I've, life too. <laughs> because I've already mentioned Batman, I think it's a quote from one of the Batman <laughs> movies, you know, why do we fall yes. so we can pick ourselves up. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Now fortunately if someone's interested in the subspecialty of adolescent medicine or any other pediatric subspecialty, that's a choice they can make later yes. on. So yes. first step is yeah. getting into that that actual specialty. And getting into the training scheme yeah. and, and doing some terms as a junior doctor, yeah. then as a more senior doctor, then actually getting into the training as a training registrar. Mm. And by that stage, you'll know whether you like it or not. You know, And no one would go through that hard kind of training unless they really enjoyed it. Um, it the training is hard, the hours are hard and, and long, but in the end, it, it all pays off. You know, And, and, and uh, it, it, I think it makes you a better doctor in the end. <laughs> yeah. 
Now, going back to adolescent medicine specifically, now, unless anyone entered medicine or medical school when they were something like 12 years old, I suppose most people are not adolescents by the time they practice adolescent medicine. That's right. Is it ever difficult talking to the patients? Look, sometimes it can be because, you know, we're not... But but when when you've had a lot of experience working in that area, you do... Um, start to get a little bit into the mindset and part of the trick of being an adolescent is to try to get into the mind into the mindset it's not always easy the one thing you've got at least I've realized come to realize is that you it doesn't always have to be you that gets into their head so sometimes your social worker might develop a much better rapport with, with that your patient than you Eating disorders is, again, a perfect model for how working as a team. So, you know, the doctor, unfortunately, the, the adolescent physician is often the bad cop. We're the ones that have to tell them, you have to go up a meal plan, you have to eat more, you've lost some weight, you need to come into hospital, and I need to put a tube down your throat, okay? So we're not the most <laughs> most popular people with our young patients. But then we get our social worker, who's really lovely, um, to go and mop up the mess <laughs> with bed and, and talk to them, well, was that hard for you? And, you know, yeah. so you use your team. Then we've got a registrar. We've got a resident. We've got a great psychologist. Um, we've got a dietitian that can talk to them. And so it doesn't always have to be you that gets into their head, but you need to be very much aware. So when we meet as a team, we discuss and we talk to each other about what's happened. And and it's amazing the amount of valuable information you can get from other members of your team. So you know the nursing staff will say, you know, we have our weekly meetings, for example, and we have our eating disorders upstairs, and they'll come in and they'll have this bright smiley face, and obviously I'm coping really well through gritted teeth, <laughs> and then. Then the nurse will say, actually, she was crying out there because you just told her she had to go up another meal plan and whatever. But I'm, I'm talking to her, oh, you know, it's settled. And then we might get our registrar, our resident to go and have a chat with her later. Social worker might spend a bit of time with her. There's group therapy. Um, so very often it's not me that's getting in their head. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of in charge of their overall health and I know how it's going and I'm getting feedback from all members of my team. So sometimes it is you. There are some patients that, you know, uh, I can get on with a lot better and that will confide a lot more to me and there's others that won't tell me a thing but they'll tell you know other members of my team things and I'm happy with that as long as overall they're getting the care they need and that's what you've got to keep in mind it's overall it's about the patient it's about getting them the best outcome in whichever way you can to use any resource you've got any member of your team that could be a resource to get in their head and to to you know so age is not so much a barrier it's more it's more using every all your resources to get in them. Right. So it definitely sounds like a team effort. We have to keep in mind that it's yeah. about the most affected patient outcome. It's not necessarily about becoming popular or making no. friends with patients. That's of right. course, we have to treat them with respect. Yes. But it's just about doing what works best for them. Exactly. And sometimes the adolescents that come to us um, are having a very difficult time. Their parents are having a difficult time if there are parents in the background. And sometimes there are there's those that don't even have or have just one carer who's working full time, etc. Um, and and so we're the ones that have to draw the lines and say no. Here's let's let's talk about sleep hygiene. What time do you go to bed? What time do you put your devices away? You know you're on your phone till like ten thirty. You know one day you're not getting to sleep till, you know go through issues like sleep, their activities, their sexuality, um, eating obviously, nutrition, um, and 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 put guidelines down and a lot of what we say is going to go in one ear out the other they're not going to like what we say we still say it every time and you have to just keep those boundaries and those lines up and you know still um, allow them to kind of be themselves and and do some of the things they do not judgmental so if they're obviously engaging in activities that are not um, not good for their health that are harmful to them have to advise them about it 
in a non-judgmental way, but we still have to keep that approach up. So they know, they come, there are some lines drawn, and, 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 and if I come to this physician, I'm going to be safe, because he or she is going to tell me what's right or wrong for me. They're not going to just try to please me or be my friend. They've got plenty of friends who can, <laughs> you know, um, collude with them in whatever they're doing. They don't need, they don't necessarily need a friend in the pediatrician mm. or the adolescent physician. If they, in time to come, think, that, okay, that, that person was actually good for me. That would be great. But you're not here to be their friend. You're here to be their doctor. That's that's the that's the like, it's a distinction. Yeah, you're not there to be the creepy older friend who that's doesn't right. even go to school with them. That's right. That's <laughs> right. That's right. <laughs> okay. Now, just for anyone who deals with adolescents, whether in adult medicine or yeah. in adolescent medicine specifically, yeah. um, do you have any advice for dealing with adolescents? For example, should it be different from dealing with adults? Uh, yes, a, a little bit different because, uh, you know, adults have mostly matured. They're able to live independently, make their own decisions, and they've gone through that phase. So adolescents are going through uh, a lot of things all at the same time, body changes, hormonal changes, education. Many of our patients are dealing with the stress of exams and HSC, um, and then they may having to make life choices, important life choices, all while grappling with an illness. The illness might also mm. hold them back, and they can see their friends moving on, for example, and whereas they sometimes uh, have been held back by whatever their illness is. Eating disorders, again, I keep harping back because that's one of our main things, but eating disorders, for example, they often lose a good year of school. They may physically lose it or they may, uh, as in they've been away from school that long, or they've been attending school but their mind's not been there, so they they're actually don't do that well in exams. They might have to repeat next year. They might have to go down pathways, etc. So you need to just need to kind of... Um, uh, you know, be there for them and 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 uh, transition them through that phase, basically. Yeah. And is there any difference in the way you directly talk to them? For example, would you lean more towards open versus closed questions? Do you have to try and, you know, slide in the word Snapchat somewhere and look cool, or, or should you just be yourself? <laughs> I think be yourself because they can work you out very fast. They're very smart, most adolescents, and they would work out that an old person like me does not know much about more than you know what what her own. <laughs> daughter's told her about Snapchat. So I would uh, sometimes I ask them and I, I actually learn some things from them too. So they're quite happy to tell me um, and have a little laugh on the way at the things that doctor <laughs> I don't know. Um, you know, so so they uh, just being open I think and honest with them. Uh, look, I, I'm aware they're on social media and ask them about it and how long are they on. I only ask them in as much as it concerns mm. their health. I don't it's not too intrude in their life in any way and they tell me they they they're pretty good with it. Um, but you talk to them Pretty much, uh, I feel, I find that talking to them um, in a more adult, open-ended way, they appreciate that, they like that. If they um, don't understand, then you can simplify the language a little bit more. Uh, there are some adolescents that we see that are still very much in a paediatric mold they because if the chronic illness they just haven't developed so the chronologically you know several years younger and you automatically find yourself talking to them a little bit more like a child and maybe talking dealing with the parents a bit more because they haven't yet transitioned when they're ready and that you know so an 18 year old that's you know behaving more like a 12 year old might be ready in two or three years time for you to deal with them like an adult they need to just have your confidence and and if they're behaving like a 12 year old then you know you manage them how you would a 12 year old you can talk to their parents the parents are probably still hovering around and then with time you'll help them to transition and and go through adolescence and if they have to go through adolescence later that's fine but yes very open-ended most young people don't uh, give you everything if you ask them you know um, if, if you don't if you try to direct them too much you know you let them talk as much as you can um, and let them tell you things and they'll gradually tell you things 
there are some situations where you might specifically ask them things, you know, for for example, um, you know, how are you finding this? How are you finding homework? How are you finding, um, you know, this particular subject that you're doing at school now? Or for those learning difficulties, is it getting any easier now? You've been doing speech pathology for three months. Is it helping you? Specific questions occasionally mixed in with more open-ended questions is generally the style. And you kind of wing it as you, as you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the general principle seems to be just keep in mind what you're trying to ask. Don't yeah. have to ask lots of unrelated questions. Yeah. Tailor it to the patient and just yeah. judge it. And a yourself. conversational yeah. style is good because okay. they, they, they like that. They generally relax a little bit more if you do that. Excellent. And just something you said earlier, I just wanted to add that another H could be HSC. So we could really, really well, extend. That's a good idea, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, because that, that's high a contributor to yeah. a lot of the stress at high school. That's right. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's Excellent. a good one. <laughs> All right. So we'll just finish off with one last question, which is sure. if you could give advice to your younger self, yes. <laughs> what would you say? Oh, goodness. Um, I, uh, I probably. Would have would have said, look, accept the the um, not not vaccine. Don't accept. Uh, don't don't expect everything to be handed on a plate to you. Uh, it is going to be um, a more diff a difficult struggle. Um, and just accept it and take it for what it is. Uh, if I could have known that, mm -hmm. um, uh, that that would have been really um, really great. Um, uh, yeah, I, I did not have a mentor, so what I would have said is to my younger self, go and get a mentor who could who could guide you along the way. But I think a lot of young students now do have someone to mentor them, and I would highly recommend that. So someone that they respect that's uh, further on in the profession, not related to them, that can give them some objective advice as they go along is, is, is generally a good thing to have, that they can, you know, go and talk to as, as, as they go along. I had to feel my way along a mm. lot of the time. Um, for example, I, I knew that I loved paediatrics as an undergraduate and then I lost track of that as an intern and thought I wanted to do something else and went off for a little while um, uh, and then realised, it took me several years to realise. Re in retrospect, those years didn't hurt me, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm happy with what I did, but yeah, probably a mentor would have been good. <laughs> yeah, you know, ironically, if you were able to travel back in time and give yourself yeah. advice, you would yeah. be the best mentor for yourself. Well, exactly. You'd, you'd be like, oh, be my mentor, and you'd be like, no, sorry, I have to go back to the future. <laughs> yeah, <that's right>. <laughs> <laughs> so the other thing I wonder is, um, if someone were to actually go back in time and tell yeah. you, you know, this yeah. is hard, it's not going to be hands-on on a plate, how do you think you would react? Would, would it scare you, or you'd just be like, oh, I'm ready for this now, I'm prepared? I think I would have said I'm ready for it and I'm prepared, and I think if I had known that it was going to be long harder, I, I would have made uh, I, I think I still would have become a paediatrician, um, but I just would have been a lot more prepared, uh, you know, along the way. Uh, and, and as I said, a lot of people who do medicine have excelled all their lives at everything and, you know, always been top of their class since being a primary school. And then you have to accept that when you're in the world of, of medicine and the world of subspecialty medicine, it is getting so hard that uh, and different set of skills that uh, it's just not always going to be smooth sailing and easy. In, and easy. Um, and if it is, there's something wrong with it, you know. So, it's too easy, that's the problem. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, you know, uh, the, along the way, uh, for, you know, for example, in training, you always try to get better rotations, better this, better that. And during my training, I counted up after my, I passed my exams, uh, that I'd actually done 
more than half my training in the emergency department and in neonatal intensive care, both of which don't, you know, everybody tries mm. to get subspecialty medical terms when you're training as a, as a paediatrician. But now, when I actually finally got got a job and started working as a paediatrician and then an adolescent physician, I'm so glad for that all that time I did in emergency department and uh, neonatal, now I don't need the neonatal intensive care, but mm. it, all the intensive care, that was really hard work. But if had I not done that, it wouldn't have made me, um, you know, the, 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 the physician that I am today. Um, so it's all good. You know, whatever, all the um, hard yakka that you've got to yeah. do along the yeah. way, it, it's all worth it in the end. Having some premonition that it's going to be like that will stop you being so disheartened along the way because there are times in your career that you're going to be very disheartened other times when things are going to work better for you. Um, so knowing that it is meant to be a long and hard road, I think mm. just help, would have helped, you know. Yeah. Helpful. <laughs> I think I think that's really inspirational, and especially being happy with whatever happens, because not everyone, is, yeah. you know, um, when um, when their mother gives birth to them, not everyone comes out of the womb saying kidney. Yeah. You know, like, exactly, exactly. you don't know what you're gonna do. Exactly. You 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 sometimes take time to find mm. what your calling is in medicine. I think you should congratulate yourself if you have found your calling in medicine. You 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 know you enjoy medicine. You you know you know that you want. Because even that's hard for some people to know. And then with, within medicine, what it is. Just take your time to find it. If it's not immediately appearing to you as a, as a medical student, do a couple of general years as an intern and, and a junior resident and work out what it is that you enjoy and you like. And and I think if you don't find it, it will find you. You know, I mean... Sounds a bit ominous, but in a good way. It will find you, exactly. <laughs> you, you'll somehow or other find yourself doing better at the things you enjoy mm. and then somebody will say to you, why don't you come and work with us for a little while? You might not have thought about it, but then you go and, 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 and you'll, you'll gradually find find your way, find your pathway. For some, it's a lot more clear cut, you know, because they've known right from the day they started medicine they wanted to be a surgeon, and and that's great too, you know. That that's that's also really good. Um, so, but if you're in that group that doesn't know, then just just feel your way along really gradually. Mm. And it, you will find your your career will find you. <laughs> yeah, you only just don't know yet. Yeah. So that's yeah. a really great attitude yeah. to everything. Yeah. So thank you so much for your time, Dr. Lynette. <laughs> you're welcome. Yeah, you've given us an excellent overview of what adolescent medicine is and some really great life advice as well. <laughs> So thank you again, and we'll see all our listeners on the next episode. Thank you. I wish you all the best.